right, we're in week two of our mini-series on the church, and uh, this is going to be a four-week mini-series, so we're on week two. Uh, we'll be halfway done after today, and uh, last week we looked at the nature of the church. In other words, we answered the question, what is the church? Obviously an important question if you're going to better be the church, right? And so we talked about that, and I want to begin today by rereading one of the descriptions of the church that we looked at last week. Remember that kind of litany of examples of descriptions that were biblically informed. One of them was by uh, a professor that I had when I was in seminary who actually taught my class on the church. His name is Dr. Michael Spiegel, and, and he said this when he describing the universal church and then also local churches and how those fit together. He said, the true body of Christ is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church called by God the Father, united in Christ, and preserved by the Spirit. That's the the big C church, okay? And then he goes on to say, a true Christian congregation is centered on Christ's person and work, governed by the Holy Scriptures, conformed to the ancient tradition, going all the way back to the uh, apostles, identified by particular apostolic marks and works, and free from heresy. That was his uh, sort of simplified definition of the church. And again, he was my ecclesiology professor. That's the big fancy word for the study of the church. And most of what I'm going to say today and next week, in fact, a lot of the the, uh, skeletal system of these, all four of these sermons comes from his class notes. Uh, He wrote an, an incredible book called Retro Christianity, And I'm pulling a lot, so I'm not going to quote him over and over again. Just know I'm giving him credit up front. A lot of this, particularly the marks and works that we're going to look at this week and next week, come from Dr. Michael Spiegel up in Dallas. Uh, This week, we're going to look at at what Dr. Spiegel calls the apostolic marks of an authentic local church. In other words, these are the essential components that make a church a church, without which you are not an authentic New Testament church. You're just a group of people doing something somewhere, okay? Um, earlier this month, you, you probably didn't see this. I was on a podcast where they talked about it, but uh, a, a gentleman by the name of, his title is actually the Right Reverend. Uh, he's in the Episcopal or Anglican tradition. So his name was the Right Reverend John Shelby Spong uh, up in the Northeast. He was actually in New Jersey. Uh, he passed away earlier this month on September 12th, and so there was a lot of, uh, he was a pretty well-known guy in certain circles, and so there was a lot of uh, obituaries floating around, and I, I heard someone reading from one of those obituaries, and uh, uh, Bishop Spong for years had been the Episcopal Bishop of Newark, New Jersey, and I found this photo of him online, he's the one on the left here, uh, that's Bishop Spong. And I, I just got interested, so I started digging more into uh, this bishop. I, some of you all know this. My brother is an Anglican priest up in Philadelphia, and uh, we grew up in the Episcopal Church. And so I just, I don't know, I was sort of noodling around to find out more about Bishop Spong. And I realized something, and I'm not speaking um, ill of the dead. Please, I'm not saying this to be disrespectful. But as I I read his writings and some of the things that he stood for, I realized that if he were still alive today and you said you were moving to Newark, New Jersey and looking for a good church, I realized I could never 
ever recommend his church, any church that he was in authority over or teaching for, to someone who was moving up there to find a good local church. And you look at his picture and you might think, well, is it because his, his denomination has a, an Episcopal model of church government and we're mainly a Presbyterian model of elder-led? Is that the problem? Is that why I wouldn't recommend it? No, that's not it. You may look at his picture and just realize that he has a more formal liturgy uh, in his dress and in the worship services that he conducted. Is that it? We're less formal. We have a less formal liturgy, and I wouldn't recommend people because his liturgy is more formal. Is that why? No, that's not it. Guys, the, the, the simple reason I could never, ever recommend someone moving to New York, New Jersey, if you were still alive to his church, is because he holds to heretical beliefs. And again, I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. I'm saying that in a very factual way, that he holds to heretical beliefs. He advocated something called 12 points of reform, and that's reforming of Christianity. And those, those 12 points, it was in a book he wrote earlier in uh, the early 2000s, those 12 points of reform included rejecting God as a personal being, rejecting theism altogether, rejecting God's perfect creative work and the fall, the subsequent fall of humankind, rejecting both of those things, rejecting the virgin birth, rejecting the incarnation, sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And he calls the belief that Jesus Christ died for our sins a barbarian idea based on primitive concepts of God. That was his take on the atonement. <laughs> Uh, he rejects the biblical concept of sin for the most part. He rejects miracles, supernatural uh, occurrences. He rejects prayer to a personal God. He rejects scripture as an objective standard of truth. And he rejects the possibility of eternal condemnation. And maybe even the possibility of, of life after death. And he is in an Episcopal model of government while he was the bishop of Newark, New Jersey, he was in charge of that whole diocese. Any church under the authority and teaching of a person advocating for these types of reforms to Christianity, they, that church, so-called, cannot be considered an authentic New Testament church. And therefore, I could never recommend someone to attend such a church. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same reason I could never recommend somebody to go to a Mormon church or a Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. I think that, and this is hard in our culture, because we see someone dressed in, in church garb, at least some tradition of Christianity, and we think, well, we're all the same. We're all Christians. We just have some different beliefs and practices. That's it. You know, And we live in a world where Joel Osteen will get up you know, on CNN and say, I embrace my, my Mormon brothers in Christ, right? To the whole nation, the whole world. Um, we are in trouble if we get confused. We cannot afford to be confused about what constitutes a local church. And participation in anything less than authentic, than, than uh, in an authentic New Testament church can only lead to problems for ourselves and for others. It can only lead to trouble down the road. Uh, it's impossible, you know, think about this series. We're calling it Better Be the Church. 
As in, we are the church, but we need to better be the church that Christ desires. That's our calling, right? But you cannot better be the church that Christ desires if you're not even a member of a legitimate local church, of an authentic New Testament church. So then what should we look for in a local church? If you're looking around at churches, what do you need to make absolutely sure is a part of that local church? And this is kind of the big idea for today. An authentic New Testament church is marked by at least three core components. And people have called these different things, but from Dr. Spiegel's work, I'm taking his alliteration, which it's just easier to remember. But these are orthodoxy, which we'll talk about, order and ordinances. Orthodoxy, order, and ordinances. So first of all, an authentic New Testament church is marked by orthodoxy. What in the world does that mean? In fact, we've all probably heard that word. It literally means correct opinion. Ortho meaning straight. You go to the orthodontist, they straighten your teeth. Orthodoxy is uh, correct, well, straight, but interpreted as correct belief, correct opinion, okay? And uh, the opposite of orthodoxy, at least throughout church history, is heresy. So if you're not in line with uh, an orthodox Christian doctrine, you are at least, and I know we don't like that word, it sounds really harsh, but technically speaking, you're a heretic if you're outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. We're going to talk about that. But heresy can be defined as the conscious, willful, and stubborn departure from orthodoxy from correct opinion. And orthodoxy includes the essential unchanging truths of the Christian faith. And by the way, and this is so important for you to hear, so tune in, all right? There are other Christian doctrines that, that aren't considered orthodox doctrines. Not every Christian teaching and doctrine is an orthodox doctrine. There is unity and diversity in the Big C Church. There is latitude. There is... Uh, 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 scripture allows for a certain amount of latitude in, in different areas of belief. But this is what we all as Christians must agree on to even be considered a Christian church. So uh, heresy is the conscious, willful, and stubborn departure from orthodoxy. And it's orthodoxy being these essential, unchanging truths. Now, we get in trouble when we begin to expand the category of orthodoxy. You see how you could get in trouble with that? We teach in our church this very specific, you know, I'm not saying, I'm saying hypothetically, you have a very, and I do have a very uh, mapped out understanding of the return of Christ. The order of events and things, and that's, I read scripture and this is how I, I come away with a certain order of events surrounding and related to the return of Christ. But if I take those the specificity of those beliefs, and I stick them into the category of orthodoxy, and I start calling everybody else that doesn't hold to that a heretic, then I'm in trouble. And I am uh, really um, negatively affecting the Big C Church, all right? In a very problematic way. The other way you get in trouble is if you uh, don't expand the category of orthodoxy, but you reduce what is considered orthodoxy. You're like, you know, I don't like that doctrine. That sounds judgy or whatever, you know? Like, let's just leave that out. You get in a lot of trouble there, and you end up holding to heretical beliefs. And it's a slippery slope, by the way. Uh, so what we need to keep in that category of orthodoxy is, and one person in the 5th century A.D., one of the church uh, teachers back then, said that it's what 
What has been believed everywhere, always, and by all? What has been believed everywhere, always, and by all? So the broad swath of the Christian church has, has believed these core doctrines from the very beginning, the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles, all the way up through to today. Now, are there always going to be fringe groups that go different directions on those core doctrines? Yes, okay. But, but by and large, that's been the core of the Christian faith, all right? At the heart of Christian orthodoxy is what? At the very heart of it is what we would call the gospel, it is the person and work of Jesus Christ in his first and second coming. That's at, the, that's at the very heart of Christian orthodoxy, the person and work of Jesus Christ in his first and second coming. Now, we could unpack that more, but Christian orthodoxy understands the gospel. It understands the person and work of Christ in a biblical framework of what my professor called a Trinitarian creation redemption narrative. Big, long words for the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of the world and humankind. Focused on, centered on Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the, the story, that's the biblical story that frames out the person work of Jesus Christ in his first and second coming. And that essentially provides a fence for what is Christian orthodoxy with Christ and his work at the center, Okay. In other words, orthodoxy would include not just the gospel, right? It's not just what you need to believe to become a Christian. It also would include uh, the triunity of God as Father, as Son, and Holy Spirit. The role of each divine person in creation and in redemption of humankind, culminating in the return of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom. Now, some of these things we don't talk about much in the church, but, but this is... This is what frames out Christian orthodoxy over the last 20 centuries, is that creation-redemption narrative centered on the personal work of Christ. We could also tease out other related orthodox doctrines. That's not my goal for today, is to itemize all these. Um, but, for instance, the inspiration and authority of Scripture is, is one that I would note. Did you know? Yes, we came up with some technical terms after the Enlightenment, when people just threw God's Word into the garbage, in the 1800s, the 19th century, whole denominations walked away from the authority and inspiration of Scripture. So we had to come up with some technical theological terminology. But do you know from the very beginning, in the words of Scripture itself, we have always, as a Christian Big C Church, held to the inspired, authoritative Word of God. From the get-go. You can't set that one aside. And uh, all Orthodox doctrines can be traced back to the teaching of Christ and his apostles. We don't pick this up from church tradition throughout these centuries, but you can see it reflected in church tradition. And you can see the wrestling when it was fought over in church tradition as people started to veer off the path in different ways. So these apostolic teachings form the core of Christian teaching in the early church. Consider Acts chapter 2. This is one that we've all probably heard before if you've been around the church long. But Acts 2.42 is describing this early church in Jerusalem. And it says, they, meaning these new believers, were continually devoting themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What were they devoting themselves to? Oftentimes gathering together in the temple, the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? They were teaching what Christ taught them. They were passing along orthodoxy 
And this was a major component of the early church and all throughout. The apostles and their disciples were, were very careful to pass down exactly what they had received from Christ himself. If you watch the History Channel, if you get your church history from the History Channel, stop, okay? Like those, yes, they're entertaining and whatnot, but it's garbage in terms of its theological perspective, its perspective on church history. I will give you a great tome of church history that you can wade through. It'll take you like four years, and that will give you some good church history, a little more context than the, what, 16 minutes of show that they throw at you between commercials. Um, but the apostles and their disciples were very careful to hand down exactly what had been handed down to them. That was kind of the whole thing with orthodoxy is, I'm, you're faithful, you've been found faithful, I'm going to take this treasure that's been given to me in the apostolic teaching, and I'm going to convey it to you very carefully so that you can convey it to someone else. In fact, uh, we, uh, uh, one of the best places to see this is in the pastoral epistles. So Titus and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus. They're two of his protégés. They're two people that have been handed this treasure of orthodox apostolic teaching to then give it to other people, right? As they lead these churches in Ephesus and in Crete. And as they establish order, which we'll look at. But 2 Timothy 2.2 is a great example of how important this process of sound doctrine was for Paul and his successors. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, The things which you have heard from me not in secret, but in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So right there, you've got like four generations of people teaching in the church and how emphasized and important it was to pass along what you received to the next generation. Without orthodox beliefs, a group of people cannot be considered an authentic New Testament church. So, so Christian orthodoxy Kids, have you ever played the, the telephone game? Okay, right. Then you'll know what I'm talking about. Thank you for the thumbs up. So Christian orthodoxy is sort of like the telephone game over 20 centuries, all right? People sit down in a line, and beginning with the first person, what happens? A message is delivered from the first person to the second person, from the second to the third, and on and on, right? That's how it works. And the message is whispered from person to person until it gets to the final hearer, and then they present the message that was entrusted to them by this faithful line of, of witnesses, right? No. The, the whole thing about the telephone game is what? The message is always distorted, right? And how does it get distorted? It's because when, when somebody hears the message in their ears and it goes through their brain and then comes out their mouth uh, to the next person... Sometimes there's some loss of information. Sometimes there's some additional information. If you've played the game, you know that depending on how many are in the line, that message can get really jacked up, okay, uh, by the time you get to the end. And sometimes people accidentally pass on the wrong information or additional information. Other times there's a nefarious person in the line who does what? Changes it intentionally just to be a scoundrel, okay? Uh, and, and then, you know, you end up with a totally different message. So for 2,000 years, Christian leaders and teachers have been passing along the core of Christian orthodoxy from generation to generation to generation. And folks, here's how we know that that has gone better than any telephone game you've ever played. And believe me, there's a lot more people involved in this one. It's because we can look back to the scriptures themselves 
to the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. We can look back to the teachings of the first and second and third and fourth and fifth generations of church fathers and teachers and leaders. And we can see an incredible level of accuracy based on those original passages, original messages in the writings of the early church leaders and in the writings of Scripture itself. So history also gives us plenty of examples of heresy. When false teachers come in and try and intentionally change the message of Christian orthodoxy. In fact, that's why a lot of the early church councils happened. is because Arianism and all these other isms cropped up because teachers were like, eh, I don't know about that. I'm going to come up with my own thing. And they would swerve off in this direction and the church would have to go, whoa, that doesn't sound right. Let's figure out what's wrong here and, and isolate it and say, no, that's not part of Christian orthodoxy. So in order to be considered an authentic New Testament church, we must hold on to the original teaching of Christ and his apostles. I can't emphasize that enough. So then, how could we apply this? Well, for one thing, you can read our Constitution. It's over there. It's printed out. It's six front and back pages, all right? You can read our Constitution and see that we are not heretics at Wayside. We've got some visitors here today. We're not heretical in our teachings, okay? You You should know that on the front end, okay? And obviously that helps us to better be the church. But we will also better be the church if we can rightly distinguish between what is and what is not Christian orthodoxy. And again, just because I favor a certain interpretation of the order of events in the end times doesn't mean we can cram that into the category of Christian orthodoxy. We have to be super careful about that. Not everything on our doctrine statement should be considered orthodoxy. We need to know where to draw the line between acceptable and unacceptable doctrines. And this will help us better be the church by helping us understand how to recognize other authentic New Testament churches that we can lock arms with and partner with in gospel ministry in greater Austin and around the world. We, we need to know who we're involved with in that sense. So orthodoxy is the first mark of an authentic New Testament church. The second mark of an authentic New Testament church is order, is order. And this term points to properly trained, trusted, and tested pastors, teachers, and leaders to whom the orthodox faith has been entrusted to defend and to pass on to the next generation. So church order also necessarily includes discipline. And we think of corrective discipline. Yes, church order involves corrective discipline, but it also includes formative discipline. What we think of as discipleship and helping people grow spiritually towards maturity. Church order involves both of those things. Um, It also includes a formal process of membership to determine, think about this. If if you're going to be involved in corrective and formative discipline, if there's going to be uh, uh, leadership, it makes sense that you would need a formal process of membership to determine who these pastors, teachers, and leaders are supposed to be pastoring, teaching, and leading. I mean, I know that weighs on me. Like, I need to know. Like, if you're visiting, that's awesome, right? Like, David and Rachel, like, they have a great church family, all right? Uh, Hill Country Bible Church, I think, is still, right? We, we, they are an authentic New Testament church. They're fantastic. They do things differently than us in some places. They're different size and stuff, but they're a great church. But I know, and I can rest easy at night knowing that Rachel and David have a great church with some great pastoral leadership. 
That's important for church leadership to know that. So a formal process of membership is an important part of church order. And we see the importance of church order in Paul's instructions to Titus. Look at how he opens his letter to Titus. He says, Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That you would set in order. So they come through, they share the gospel. There's all these new believers. It's kind of like, a madhouse probably like Jews and Gentiles coming to faith like how do we do this thing called Christianity and and it's kind of a mess probably right like a holy mess okay and so Paul's like Titus I'm sending you into the mess you need to set things in order and you need to appoint elders in all the churches right he specifies that Paul goes on then in the rest of Titus chapter one to do what to tell Titus, like, these are the type of leaders you're looking for. He gives qualifications for elders in Titus 1. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when he's sending it to his protege Timothy in Ephesus. So he talks about qualifications. He paints this portrait of what, what the pastoral leadership needs to look like. And, and back in Hebrews, just a couple weeks ago as we were rounding out the book of Hebrews, uh, we looked at another passage that speaks of church order. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The author says, to, to these Christians in this church, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then Peter emphasizes some of those same points in 1 Peter chapter 5. He's talking to the elders uh, that he's writing to, and he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And then he says this. This is his exhortation to these elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So notice how Peter speaks of those allotted to their charge. All right. In other words, God has intentionally placed shepherds in local churches to provide leadership for particular groups of people. Like we can't miss that when we're reading about church order in Scripture. Without some sort of biblically informed church order, a group of people cannot truly be considered an authentic New Testament church. Um, yesterday, I went to my daughter's soccer game, Hannah. It was her first soccer game of the season. And I, I walk up with like 15 folding chairs, you know, like I still have bruises on my shoulders from holding all these things. And I like run up and dad was with me. Uh, and so we, we finally get up there and it's like, what, four miles from the parking lot to the I mean, it was nuts. So I get there, and I'm like sweating, and I drop the chairs. And as I'm dropping the chairs, one of the moms comes up and goes, Excuse me, sir, uh, did you say to the coach on Thursday at practice that you'd be willing to help out sometime? And I said, I almost said, No, that wasn't me. That was another guy. But I said, uh, Yeah, that, that was me. And she goes, Well, the coach no-showed. So could you coach the team? We don't have a coach. And these are kids, this is their first game of the season. Like, some of the kids have never played soccer before. I, last time I played soccer, I was, what, eight years old? And my dad was the assistant to the assistant coach, and the coach had to go to prison, and then the assistant coach dropped out, and then dad became the coach of our soccer team. So it's like generational pass down or something. 
But anyway, I'm like, okay, I'll coach. And, and you know, we somehow pulled out a W. I, I don't even know. Yeah. It was all because my daughter. I mean, you know, nobody was rotating. Everyone was on the field the whole time in the sun. It was, it was awesome. She loved it. We got blizzards afterwards, so it made it okay. But anyway, my point is, is that, uh, you know, I had to learn the kids' names pretty quickly. And, and I asked the referee a ton of questions. I had no idea what I was doing. I had to ask him, like, how many kids are supposed to be on the field at one time? He's like, just, it's okay. They, they only have seven kids. We're just going to do seven. And I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, and so I was asking all these questions. I ran up and down the sidelines, like, giving orders, like, kick the ball. You know, like, kick the ball towards the goal. You know, that was like my, and then I was encouraging him. I had all these great words of encouragement. So anyway, we pulled off the W. But can you imagine if there were no coaches not just no coaches, but no referees, no player positions, no agreed upon rules of play, no boundaries chalked out on the field, no official team roster even. You could just go in between teams out on the field at any given moment. That would be absolute utter chaos. It was utter chaos, and we had most of those things, okay? None of the kids would have experienced what it means to play as a legitimate soccer team. In fact, none of the kids would have grown in their ability to play the sport of soccer because we probably wouldn't have been actually playing soccer based on definitions, okay? A local church with little to no church order is in a similar boat, okay? What do I mean by that? I mean that members need to know who their shepherds are. You need to know who is responsible for providing pastoral care and support and leadership for you. And and shepherds need to know who they're responsible for shepherding and who they're not responsible for shepherding. Do you just shepherd every Christian in greater Austin if you're a pastor in Austin? Talk about burnout, right? Or like, who do you know who to go to for pastoral care if you don't know who your shepherds are, right? So you need to know these things. We need to know these things. Without some sort of established pastoral authority, some agreed-upon shepherding pastoral authority in the local church... Um, and also some sort of formal church membership where you're in or you're not. How, how do, without those things, how do you maintain, how do you keep the purity of the life and doctrine of a church? And, and what I would argue is you can't without those things. In order to be considered an authentic New Testament church, we must have some sort of biblically informed church order. So church order is crucial to the health and well-being of any church congregation. But church order can look different in different churches. Guys, Wayside's not the place where you're going to get like the dogmatic, the color, the carpet has to be red. And if it's not, you're all heretics and we're breaking fellowship with you, okay? Like that's not this church, okay? Uh, but, But... we need to understand that there's latitude in how we order our, our local churches, okay? And, and the scripture, God in his wisdom allowed for that latitude. That's why there's not tons and tons and tons of specificity on exactly how to arrange the church. Because think about it. We live in a very different historical and cultural context than the early church in Jerusalem. And if you're a church primitivist that says, oh, we got to go back to that. Well, get off your phone. Yeah, don't wear shoes. Like, go out to some... Go out to some, you know, forest somewhere in robes and, you know, without electricity, right? Like, we can't go back to that situation. So we do have to make decisions, and we do have to figure out how to appropriately 
structure the church order in the local church for today, in this generation, in this cultural and historical context. And that's one of the most important things for leaders in local churches to do, because you can do it wrong. (laughs) You can get it wrong if you violate the standards that Scripture does lay out, because there are some, okay? And that latitude shows up in different models of church. I told you my brother's an Anglican priest. They have an Episcopal church governance model. We're Presbyterian, not because we're part of the Presbyterian denomination. We're non-denominational because we're elder-led. But there's also congregational-led churches in the Southern Baptist uh, denomination and elsewhere. Um, So there's latitude. It, It shows up in different standards for church membership exactly what it takes to become a member in that local church. That can be a little different. Methods of church discipline. And if you want to know what church order looks like here at Wayside, just go grab a constitution. This isn't some secret thing we do in secret meetings. Like, go pick up a constitution and read it. You'll know exactly how we order our local church, okay? And it's not perfect, and there's not one way to do it. And, like, we figured it out, and we're just going to, like, sell the book and do the conference that everyone needs to go to to figure out how to do it. Like, there's latitude, guys. We need to have some humility in this process. Um, One of the most important responsibilities of our elders, as I said, is to determine how to appropriately contextualize the ministry in a way that doesn't violate scriptural norms and yet allows us to better be the church in the 21st century in Austin, Texas. So the first and second marks of an authentic New Testament church are orthodoxy and order. The third mark is the proper administration of the ordinances, or sacraments, they're called in some traditions. And there's only two that have been practiced everywhere, always, and by all Christians. Now, if you have a Roman Catholic background, you've heard seven sacraments, okay? That's seven, right? I got that wrong the other day. Brantner goes, seven, Dad? I go, that's only six. He's like, no. Anyway, seven. We got it right here. Roman Catholics believe in seven. Some uh, traditions that came out of the Plymouth Brethren movement uh, add foot washing as a third, right? The only two that have been administered or observed by everyone always, all time, are the Lord's Supper. Actually, I'll start with baptism. Our water baptism and the Lord's Supper, okay? Those are the only two. So baptism is the one-time rite of initiation into the church. You don't get re-baptized. Now, if, if you were baptized as a baby like I was, and you never believed that you were a believer later on, like I didn't, like my brother did, like he went through confirmation and he really he believes that he believed as early as he could believe. And so that's it, right? I kicked church to the curb when I was 16 and I didn't come to a saving uh, relationship with Jesus Christ until I was 23. So I, I don't say I got re-baptized. I say that I got baptized as a believer. Okay, so we, we practice believer's baptism here at Wayside. My brother, who's an Anglican priest, he, uh, if you're a Christian family, a Christian husband and wife, mother and father, you can baptize your babies in his tradition called pedo-baptism. Okay, there's, there's some latitude here. We can't be super dogmatic on these things, but we can have really good conversations and go to Scripture, okay? All right, um, So it's a one-time rite of initiation into the church. And guys, the church is the new covenant community of believers. So when we believe in Jesus, you read this in Ephesians and elsewhere, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the, the, the one body, the body of Christ, into the big C church, the body of Christ. We are baptized by the Spirit into the church in that sense. 
that's, that's what we know of as spirit baptism, okay? Uh, but then water baptism, and that's an invisible reality. Water baptism then becomes the, the visible sign of the invisible spiritual reality of our initiation into the body of Christ. They're not the same thing. Spirit baptism and water baptism are not the same thing, but if you look at how Scripture talks about them, you, they're inextricably linked together. You cannot separate them, but you cannot make them the same, okay? Spirit baptism and water baptism. So let's talk about water baptism. When we look at baptism in the New Testament, at least five things become apparent. And I'm going to go through these relatively quickly. Baptism is a public confession of faith in the triune God. We see that even in the Great Commission. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the early church, they used to do trine baptizing where they'd dip them three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do that. That's how they did it. But it's a, it's a public confession of faith in the triune God. Baptism is a personal association with the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons we do immersion baptism. Because of the symbolism of going into the water and coming out of the water I think best pictures, and a lot of Christian traditions think best pictures being associated with his saving death and resurrection. All right? Baptism is an act of repentance to forsake the path of sin. It's not just changing your mind about some, some little thing. It's literally, you're at a fork in the road, and there's the way of death, and there's the way of life. And it's, 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 it's taking the way of life. In fact, that's how they would speak of it in the early church and in Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, they would speak about this, this two paths. So it's an act of repentance to forsake the path of sin and death and say, I'm not going to be on that path anymore. I'm going to be on the path of righteousness and holiness and life. Okay? Uh, baptism is a pledge to live the new life of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't pledge to live that life by your own power. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to get... Um, it's not going to work for you. But it's a pledge to live that life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then baptism is also a rite of initiation, as I already said, into the new covenant community, including the extension of official forgiveness. Now, what do I mean by forgiveness here? Why is it in quotes? I mean that you're coming under the cover of the church. Uh, and this is where church discipline is very serious. All right? You, we, we express the forgiveness you have in Christ when you're in the local church and church discipline and then you repent and we say you're forgiven but if you're obstinate and hard-headed and stubborn about your sin uh, whatever it is like church discipline puts you outside of the church and that protective covering and as Paul says it and you got to take this so seriously this is Paul's not making this up he says I handed this person over to Satan for the chastising of their flesh, for the ultimate purpose of recognizing just how dangerous it is outside the covering of the church, that you have made yourself vulnerable to spiritual attack in a way that is not true for those under the auspices of the church, the body of Christ, all right? That's serious business, and we don't take it very seriously because church discipline's like so alien to us. We're like, What? That's just a marketplace of spiritual goods and services. Why would they ever tell me I can't show up? You know, it's kind of how we treat it. But anyway, um, all right. So based on the biblical truth, Christian theology and church history, we can make four more statements about baptism. It's the exclusive outward response to the gospel message. Guys, can you raise your hand? You know, if you trust in Jesus at a church gathering? Yes. Can you walk forward if they do an altar call? Yes. Can you pray a prayer? Yeah. In fact, I do that with people. I have done that with people. They believe in Jesus, right? Have you 
you know, pray the sinner's prayer, you know. I think that's the appropriate response. But the exclusive outward response to the gospel message is what? It's water baptism. And it will always be that. When we trust in Christ, we get baptized. It's also the exclusive public sign of a believer's saving faith. It's the exclusive means of dedication to living the Christian life. Guys, just saying, hey, I want to live the Christian life. I want to be a member of the church. Like, to do that and neglect baptism is like getting the cart before the horse. Like, it's the exclusive means of, of, of telling your, your community and the world that this is what you're doing, right? And it's the exclusive right of covenant initiation into membership in the local visible church. Again, it's an initiatory thing. That's why it only happens once. So that's just a quick overview of baptism. Real quick, the Lord's Supper. It's an ongoing rite of covenant renewal as a new covenant community in Christ. I know I'm using a lot of covenant language, but that's what it is. That's why Christ says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's answer a couple questions. What, where, when, why, and how? What is the Lord's Supper? It's a shared meal which symbolizes our participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Christ is not physically present. We don't hold a Roman Catholic doctrine. It's called transubstantiation, where the, the bread and the, and the wine metaphysically becomes the body and blood of Christ. Roman Catholics don't teach that if you were to open up your stomach and pull it out, it would be flesh and blood. They don't teach that. It's not physical. It's metaphysical. It's like the essence of under the physical reality becomes the body and blood of Christ. We don't hold to that. I'm sorry to get so technical, but we have a lot of church traditions in this room, all right? But we do believe that he's not physically present for this shared meal, but, but Christ is present in some sense in at least three ways. Listen to how Christ is present when we take communion. He's actively present through the work of the Holy Spirit. He's actively present. The Holy Spirit bridges that gap between Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father and us as his body. The head and the body bridges that. He's present in the sense that his body of the church is physically gathered together as one. Guys, we're the body of Christ. When we gather together to take communion, remember in Matthew 18, 20, he says, where two or three are gathered, there I am also. There is a special presence of Christ that happens when we come together as members and form local bodies of believers. And, and specifically in communion. And he's also present through symbol and remembrance. Where should we observe the Lord's Supper? Well, really based on scripture and theology and church history, the only appropriate place is in the local church. Now that can happen in small groups of the local church or something, but we don't go to camp and do the Lord's Supper. We don't do the Lord's Supper with our, our bowling team that are all Christians. You know, like we just, it's in the context of the local church. All right, when should we observe? It's hard to make a case against weekly observance. Like, we should do this weekly. And in fresh ways, so it's not just this boring, rote tradition. I mean, kids, I grew up in a really high church, Episcopal church, and everything was real formal and liturgical. But I began to miss the significance of communion. It began just to become this rote thing that I did, like this religious activity. It can never become that. We have to defend against that. And then why should we observe the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper doesn't provide us with saving grace. Like, again, we don't hold the Roman Catholic doctrine on this. But it is a sacrament of sanctifying grace. In other words, it sets us apart for God's purposes and helps us grow together toward maturity in Christ. If you just stop taking the Lord's Supper, that's going to affect your sanctification, this process of spiritual growth. Like, just the act of doing that together as a local church nourishes us in the faith and helps us grow in our faith together. 
and it's the right of covenant renewal, promoting and restoring community fellowship. How should we absorb the Lord's Supper? This is the last thing. As one body, as partaking of Christ's body and blood, again, not literally, physically, or metaphysically, um, but being nourished on the body and blood of Christ, as he talks about in John 6, as a sacred memorial, as a proclamation of Christ's death until he returns, and as a means of blessing or judgment, if you read the end of 1 Corinthians 11. If we take the Lord's Supper wrongly, uh, there's judgment. And like that's a tough set of verses at the end of 1 Corinthians 11 that we have to wrestle with. Okay? All right, so if, if a so-called church is not properly observing baptism in the Lord's Supper, then it cannot be considered an authentic New Testament church. Guys, baptism is like a wedding ceremony. I thought about this when they were playing Be Thou My Vision because that was the song that our friends sang at our wedding, Be Thou My Vision. And uh, think about this. A wedding initiates a man and woman into the lifelong intimacy of marriage. It doesn't mean it's always uh, uh, hunky-dory, but, but it's, you, you've, you've, you've gone from what you were to what you now are as one flesh, this one flesh relationship in marriage that's totally unique in, in humankind. All right? And that's an initiation to it, that wedding ceremony. And similarly, baptism initiates us into a life of intimate fellowship with Christ and other Christians in the church. The Lord's Supper is like a renewal of vows ceremony. So you're not getting remarried. You all know what renewal of vows ceremonies are, right? Okay. You're not getting remarried in those, okay? You're not like, oh, we've got to get divorced so we can get remarried. You're renewing. You're going back and being reminded of the vows you took. And it's important. I mean, maybe we should do renewal of vows for our married couples every week, right? I, I, we, we've got a framed copy of our wedding vows that sits behind my, my desk chair, and it's framed. It's on the bookcase. And yesterday, I like looked back, and I was just rereading it, and it was such a blessing to me to remember what I solemnly, joyfully, and willfully promised to do in terms of my wedding vows before God and witnesses. Um, I mean, what, I, 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 uh, I pledged before God and those witnesses to place Stacy's good above mine, now and always, no matter the circumstances. I promise to love and to honor and to cherish her until death parts us. And I joyfully and willingly committed myself to her and to her alone. I spoke those words, she spoke those words back to me, and I needed to be reminded of that yesterday because it's important to remember the vows. It's important to remember the nature of of who we are. And the same thing is true with church. Guys, it's essential that we're doing a celebration of the Lord's Supper every Sunday in fresh ways that help us better realize, like, remember, you might have become a Christian when you were four at camp or something. And there's been a lot of years since then. You need to go back constantly and consistently and remember, what is this? What was I initiated into? Why was I initiated into this? What did Christ do for me? What is he doing for me to sustain me in this? And, uh, and that's what we do. Um, he made our salvation possible. It recenters us on the gospel. So an authentic New Testament church observes baptism as a one-time rite of initiation and communion as the continuing rite of remembrance. So here's the simple application. Guys, if, and, and I, I have to, I said something different years ago, even months ago, and, and I'm, I'm working on this. Like, I'm, I'm struggling with baptism and Lord's Supper and, and what, how exactly we need to observe those in our church. 
And Brantner, uh, my son, he's trusted in Christ. He understands the gospel, um, but he hasn't been baptized yet. We were going to do it during COVID, and then it didn't happen, and we've just been kind of dragging our feet. And so in the meantime, I've just been saying, buddy, come up and take communion with us. But we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, and not, not to be mean, but it's because we've gotten the cart before the horse. And so we're going to go back and we're going to do it the right way, okay? We're going to do it the right way. And that means that we're going to celebrate that initiation into the new covenant community, into the church, and into the fellowship, the intimate fellowship with Christ and other Christians that is represented in the Lord's Supper. And, and that's how we're going to do it. And, and guys, you know, I would, I would offer that to you as well. Um, but if you're, if you're unbaptized or if you've got kids who have trusted in Christ who aren't baptized, like, let's, let's set up a time to talk about that. Let's set up a time to, like, figure out how to get you baptized. Okay? And, and in the meantime, would, would you do me a favor? And I'm not saying this to be mean or to, you know, be grumpy pastor. Like, let's, let's get it right. Let's, let's go back to doing it the right way. Okay? Wayside Community Church, let's get baptized. After we trust in Jesus Christ, let's get baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's do a, all the things we just talked about as, an, as a rite of initiation into this new covenant community. And then let's take communion as initiated believers into this new covenant community. And let's put the emphasis and the significance back on baptism and just how significant it is in the life of the church and throughout church history, okay? Um, so talk to me if that's you, okay? Uh, our current series is called Better Be the Church. In order to better be the church, you must first be an authentic New Testament church, which requires orthodoxy, order, and ordinances. And rest assured, Wayside is an authentic New Testament church. We're not perfect by any means, but we are authentic in that sense based on those three marks. But that doesn't mean that we don't have room to grow. And this is my challenge to you, church. We have room to grow. We can all lean in and learn and grow together as we continually go back to the Scriptures and and to examples from church history to figure out how to better reflect Christian orthodoxy in our teaching and preaching and our doctrinal statement, how to reflect Christian orthodoxy, how to better order ourselves as a local church. Guys, we have room to grow on how we're ordering ourselves as a local church, our membership and our leadership and some of these things like church discipline and whatnot. Formative and corrective. We have room to grow there. And we have room to grow in how to better glorify God in how we baptize and how we observe the Lord's Supper. And as we grow in all these ways, I promise you we will better be the church that Christ desires. Next week, we're going to move from the three marks of the church to the three works of an authentic New Testament church. So I hope you'll be here with us for that. So let's pray. Please bow your heads.